Hello. Welcome to another edition of the TCOID podcast. I'm Steve Edelman, your host. Unfortunately, my good co-host Jeremy Pettis is not here today, but importantly, we have a good friend and colleague that I've known for many years, Mimi Guarneri, and who um, is one, probably one of the most unusual healthcare professionals I know. Uh, not only on one side of her life, she's a hardcore invasive cardiologist doing five, six stents before breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and But I think the, the big thing that has differentiated Mimi is her connection and love for integrative medicine. And uh, Mimi, tell, tell the listeners a little bit how someone like you, trained in full-bled cardiology, got into what you're doing now. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, you know, in the 1990s, uh, when I trained as a young cardiologist, I really believed that we can um, defeat, if you might, for lack of a better word, cardiovascular disease mechanically. I really believed that the key was all the great surgeries we did. So I became an interventional cardiologist. That means I was placing stents, doing angioplasty, all of those things for acute care. And then what I realized over time was that those procedures, although life-saving when you need them, are absolutely no use in preventing disease and transforming one's health. So I began to realize that we needed to have the best of both worlds, intervention when you need it acutely, but then how can we prevent cardiovascular disease in the first place? How can we transform someone who's sick into someone who's feeling better and has a better quality of life? And that became my journey over the course of time. And, like, yeah, and it started, I'll just add, that it started with research with Dean Ornish in the 1990s. Oh, wow. The Ornish know? diet. The, well, it was more of a program. Right, so Ornish was like the first person who said, let's teach heart patients yoga and meditation. Let's get them exercising. Let's have people sit in support groups so they can talk about the emotional aspects of what's going on in their life. And yes, there was the diet piece, which we can go back and forth on that, but it was a whole package. And it taught me as a cardiologist the power of lifestyle change. Yeah, now <clears throat> all of that seems be once someone's had a cardiac event. And I know some of your pushes, let's get, let's prevent, let's prevent the need for a cardiologist in the first place. But I think it's important to de define what integrative medicine is. What is integrative medicine? Yeah, it's a great question because it's not a great term. I'm going to take you back to the 90s. I was at Scripps Center uh, at that time and I was teaching patients lifestyle change and uh, we needed a name for the center and integrative wasn't really an established name at that time and I said well uh, I don't I'm not a proponent of alternative medicine because that implies an alternative to conventional care and there's a time you know if you get hit with a truck you better be in a trauma center or if you have a heart attack you want to have your stent placed I, and so I see the value in acute care of conventional medicine but I also see the value of lifestyle medicine, mind-body medicine, uh, and looking at other what we call global healing traditions. And so that's where the term integrative medicine 
came from. It's mm-hmm. so as a cardiologist, uh, when I would see a patient in my conventional toolbox, if you might, and let's just say a patient said, I'm feeling stressed. I what, What's in my conventional toolbox? Uh, here's some Valium or here's a, a drug for depression. Whereas now when someone comes in and says, well, I'm feeling stressed, I can teach them breathing exercises. I talk about getting them outside, walking in nature, learning meditation or Tai Chi or going to a yoga class or, you know, so my toolbox is bigger and it's bigger, quite frankly, with evidence-based things, not with uh, things that don't have research behind them. Yeah, that, you know, that's important. I, I want to expand on that part of your life uh, because we're, we're familiar with what cardiologists do. Um, well, talk about those three areas you talked about. I mean, the mind, body, the soul, yoga, uh, Pilates, would that be in there? Well, I put the I put Pilates in the physical basket in some ways because it strengthens the core, it uh, increases muscle mass. It's just a great activity. It's, it's a form terrific of, form of exercise. It's a form of exercise. Uh, but what really got me interested in uh, this whole world is I would put a stent in a patient, and as you know, we make rounds at night and I would go around in the ICU to see the people I stented in the day and they would be eating things like uh, roast beef and mayo sandwiches or diabetics would have mashed potatoes on the on the tray. Hospital food. Hospital food mm-hmm. and I realized it was this big con- disconnect between we just did this great intervention work, high-tech medicine, and then someone gets served a plate of food that, you know, the patient thinks, oh, this must be good for me. I got it in the hospital. <laughs> but in reality, it's just creating more disease. So I got very interested in nutrition uh, because I realized that food is not only medicine, but food is information. And it's information that gets to our cells and really affects how we feel. So that was my my first uh, look at this. And then I realized many of my heart patients had health challenges that were difficult to treat, meaning, uh, gee, Dr. G, I can't exercise because my back hurts or my knee hurts. Or And our instinct in Western medicine is to say, okay, take this drug. Well, most of those drugs, as you know, are not good for heart patients. They raise blood pressure. They can affect the kidneys. They can cause ulcers and so on. So I started to think, well, instead of just giving drugs, what about changing the diet to an anti-inflammatory diet, acupuncture? What else can I bring in, right, that may make a difference for my patients? Massage therapy, acupuncture, chronic pain. I've used a lot of hypnosis. So really started to look at the medical literature and saying, hey, what did they not teach me in medical school and what's potentially out there? Right. So So when I went to medical school, I thought Western medicine was all there was. I thought what I was learning was all there was. And then I come out and I find there's something called Ayurvedic medicine, which is the medicine from India. And there's traditional Chinese medicine, of which acupuncture is just a small piece of traditional Chinese medicine. And there's homeopathic uh, medicine and there's chiropractic. And, you know, none of these things I I ever learned anything about in medical school and I started to think, what is in these global healing traditions that have been around for thousands of years? 
What value is there that may benefit my patients? My bottom line has always been, what can benefit my patients? Wow. So take me to your center. And I, let's say I had a heart attack and I come in and I, I'm guessing that you do a full evaluation. And then what kind of, what kind of approaches do you have? And I'm sure it's different for each person, but give us an idea. Because I think I just want to say that integrative medicine to a lot of Western-only trained doctors just means, you know, someone's pushing supplements. Right. Um, and, and, you know, I think from this podcast, it's just amazing the approach that you're taking in so many different areas but using traditional approaches that cardiologists would use to save someone's life, but also trying to prevent and lengthen the life of someone who did have a, a negative cardiac event. Right. So um, the first thing I say is what causes cardiovascular disease, right? And we know it's a disease of inflammation, oxidative stress, and immune response. And we know that people, for example, when you think of immune response, people that have rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and so on have very aggressive cardiovascular disease. We know that inflammation is driving the train for years, we thought cholesterol was driving the train, but then we realized, wow, even people with the same cholesterol level, those that are inflamed, are at higher risk of having a cardiovascular event. I, I just need to jump in and sorry to interrupt. Tell our, our listeners and myself, when you say inflammation, a lot of people don't know what you're talking about. They think you, you cut your knee and you got some inflammation around the wound, but I think it's so important. Right. So that's the normal response. We expect the body to begin to heal itself when it's uh, when you're cut. So we say, you know, the old rubor, you get red and you get warmth and you get tender. And uh, this is the normal healing response. But it's the same thing is going on in the body, but it's at a much more subtle, low level. And when people recognize it, it comes out as gee, I have arthritis, my joints hurt. Anything with the word itis behind it, tonsillitis, arthritis, implies inflammation. Why are my joints hurting? Why do I have brain fog? Why do I have skin rashes, right? So it, it's a much more subtle process that most people think, oh, they don't pay attention to. Or why is it that I'm having gas and bloating or one day I have constipation, the next day my stool is too loose. It can manifest in many forms. And most people just ride through their day um, and not paying attention to it. But we now know that inflammation is a cause of not only cardiovascular disease, cognitive decline, and a host of other problems. So once, if you can agree that inflammation, which is in the cardiac literature, is a key component, and we measure um, blood tests for inflammation like high sensitivity C-reactive protein and LPPLA2. These are classic blood tests and, and there are many others. Um, then you have to say what causes inflammation, right? That's the next question. And then that takes us on the journey, which Western medicine really doesn't look at very much. For example, what's going on with the nutrients I don't just give supplements. I measure your nutrients. I want to know, what, do you need magnesium? Uh, do you need antioxidants? Do you need B vitamins? Are you not getting what you need from your food or from the soil, which is depleted? 
Uh, so before we make a recommendation, we do an assessment. You come and you say, I'm having arthritis. My, the first thing that goes to my mind, is it coming from food? Is it being driven by gluten? Is it being driven by dairy? So looking at food sensitivities, looking at nutrients, looking at how the gut is working and the microbiome. Uh, these are areas in Western medicine really doesn't do a great job with. And also looking at hormones. So we, we think of hormones and we say, okay, thyroid or sex hormones like testosterone, uh, but we always forget about cortisol, right? And, and, and looking at salivary cortisols over 24 hours. Can that explain why someone is not sleeping at night or can that explain why someone is fatigued in the morning? So the kind of workup we do in, over at my clinic at Pacific Pearl is really what we call a functional medicine workup. It's, I want to get to the underlying cause of what's going on. I don't want to just give someone a bunch of supplements. I want to look at if you have a food sensitivity, we're going to... Uh, repair your microbiome. We're going to fix your gut. We're going to put you on a nutrition program that's different. Uh, we're going to balance your hormones. We're going to give you the nutrients you need, not just everything on the shelf. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm thinking to someone that is not that knowledgeable in that area, you know, it sounds complicated to me. I, I, I could imagine you ordering a big panel of things, looking at the things you're measuring and then based on your results, you, you focus your therapy. Well, you mentioned functional medicine, um, and I do know that there are physicians in the community that call themselves functional physicians, and I had no clue what they did. Um, so it's, yeah. it sounds like they're a little bit what, what you're doing. Well, there's an Institute of Functional Medicine. I happen to teach the cardiovascular module for the Institute for Functional Medicine, and there are clinicians that are certified in functional medicine. And the way to think about it is... Uh, just, just if someone has a health challenge, the next question should be why, right? Why is somebody diabetic? I mean, is it because they're not exercising? Oh, they have the genes and they're not exercising and they're not sleeping well or they're not eating right or all of the above. Well, if we can start to identify the why in any health challenge, we can start to put a program into place that can transform that health challenge. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, since this is a diabetes organization and most folks have type 2 and most folks that have type 2 have obesity and I've heard you talk at uh, other presentations about this visceral or central obesity and the fact that this can all lead to inflammation. Let's talk about your approach with obesity, type 2 diabetes. Right. So uh, as you said, that's a big health challenge today. It's probably the biggest health challenge, not only in North America, but in the world. And so for me, uh, again, it's looking at the whole person, holistic approach, body, mind, emotions, and spirit. What's going on with this individual? I have found many people that are overweight that can teach you and me every nutrition program there is, right? So something else may be the underlying cause for their obesity. Is it emotional? Is it sleep apnea that's been untreated? You know, is it depression? What's going on with this individual? So that's always my first step is what's happening here, right? It's so important because I think most, most doctors just, you know, think of the Band-Aid approach. 
And also they judge. And I was guilty of this many, many years ago. Why can't you just go out and exercise? Why can't you just go out and and take Lo- a walk? Why can't or, you lose 30 pounds before our next visit? Exactly. And why, why don't you just stop eating that cake at night, right? And then I heard an incredible lecture by Vince Folletti, and I'm sure you know Vince's work on adverse childhood experiences and, you know, 18,000 people. And he starts talking about how obe- people that were obese were obese because they'd been raped or they'd been molested as a child or uh, they'd been bullied and that extra weight protected them. And I thought, my God, we never learned about that in medical school. You know, and it sort of took all that judgment and you throw it out the window and you say, I really missed the mark on this one, right? Yeah, and there's so much uh, prejudice towards obese patients on the side of physicians and society as well. They get undertreated and things get sort of saying, oh, that's due to the fact that you're overweight. Well, let's talk mm-hmm. about um, diet a little bit. I've heard you talk about diet. Usually makes me very hungry. I'm always afraid <laughs> I would be scared to death to eat something in front of no, you. No, not I eat. you, not you. <laughs> let's, let's start off with what do you eat for breakfast? Uh, well, I, I'm sort of a creature of habit, but I always have a piece of whole grain bread with a nut butter of some sort. And on the weekends, I may make a green smoothie. So I'll put a bunch of greens together and protein powder and uh, some unsweetened. That's, that's your yeah. brunch? That's, yeah, that's <laughs> sort of my my weekend brunch, and I take the time to do that. Uh, I really try to stick with a, for me, more of a plant-based diet, mm-hmm. um, and I try to eat lots of vegetables. I try to make my snacks. Like I like to buy one of those organic vegetable trays and just have it in the refrigerator uh, almost for four or five days where I can just munch on baby carrots or celery sticks. Like the the kind you buy for a party or something Yeah, exactly. I buy it and just keep it, you know, in the refrigerator. And when I'm home, I'll usually take it out so that I'm less inclined to go and say, oh, let me munch on a cheese stick, which has no real doesn't have a lot of nutritional value. What about that value. ranch dressing thing in yeah, the middle? Yeah, <laughs> that goes out. The ranch dressing goes out, right? So um, lots of salads, lots of vegetables. Um, uh, you know, I, it just depends on your digestive system, but hopefully uh, lots of – I like organic tofu, um, and I like beans and certain legumes and lentils and so on. And once in a while I'll eat some, uh, some you know, wild salmon. Mm-hmm. Um, not, uh, and I never go beyond that in terms of animal products. So, uh, that's sort of, sort of my max. So for me, the protein smoothie is also an important source of protein, uh, because I'm not eating animal products. Wow. And it sounds like you enjoy what you eat, which I think is the most important of sticking to a particular meal plan. Uh, Well, I'll tell you what happened to me. In the 1990s, when I met Dean Ornish, and he convinced me to do the research on the heart patients, and here I am putting in stents, and I said to him, I don't know a thing about what you're talking about. I don't know about meditation. I don't know about diet. I didn't. I was an interventional cardiologist, right? And so I went to a retreat where they were teaching heart patients so I can observe the retreat, I can participate. And and I remember that first week, I said, well, I'm going to draw my blood. And I have a strong family history of heart disease. So I draw my blood and my cholesterol is 320. <laughs> now, is for that those tr- who is don't know, this is true. Wow. So for those who don't know, that's really, really high. 
<laughs> and so I thought, oh, my God, I have this horrible family history of heart disease. I have this cholesterol 320, and I'm under enormous amounts of stress as an interventional cardiologist. So I go to the retreat, and in a week, I become a vegetarian which I have to say was almost like coming off of drugs, right? You, you know, your, your body just goes through this and you have to learn. Uh, you have to learn how to eat all over again. I remember my first trip to the supermarket it took me like four hours because <laughs> I was like, you know, it wasn't so easy anymore. And once I made the transition, right, to a more plant-based diet, I never looked back. And then when I checked my cholesterol, it was 120. Initially, it was 99, and then I added back in some olive oil and some other Without things. Without any meds. Without any meds. So it was such a great lesson to me to be able to teach my patients that this is indeed possible because not only did I research it with patients, but I did it with myself. So I can see um, the difference that lifestyle can make. And that so that really got me very much into... Uh, diet and also for, for me spiritually I don't if I if I don't have to take the animal's life I'd rather not do it um, I understand especially for diabetics the need to be eating lean meats and so on uh, that but for me personally if I don't have to do it I'd rather not do it plus I never liked meat, so yeah. <laughs> it well, was easy. <laughs> well, people with diabetes can get their protein just like you Other do. Other ways, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just yeah. like you do. Now, right. Let, you, you mentioned in, when you described your diet, I'm, I'm amazed that you've, you've stuck to that uh, vegetarian plant-based diet since that retreat. Right. So mm -hmm. it's, it's something obviously you like, otherwise you wouldn't have continued it. E exactly, exactly. And I have to say, I was when I was doing my residency, I was having a hamburger like everyone else, and I was, you know... Uh, eating meat like everyone else, the things that I liked, uh, but I don't miss any of that. And it's just a matter of your taste buds change, right? And how you, and especially, you know, one thing I did learn from Dean, which I thought was really important, is feeling good is a motivator. What I learned from my patients is I can stand over a patient and say, do what I say or you're going to have a heart attack. Mm -hmm. You know, and they may remember that for three weeks or three months and then they go back to their old habits. But when someone is at their ideal body weight, when their energy's good, when they're feeling good about themselves and so on, that's the motivator. That's what keeps us going, right? Yeah. What's your opinion on the uh, hamburgers and the, the mm. different types of protein that's plant-based? Yeah, that's a. Some of those are not very good. Just for uh, their listeners, opinion. she's she, Mimi's rolling her eyes right now. Yeah, no, <laughs> not, not quite. But as, some of those are really not good. Uh, they're because. very, very processed. Um, so I like to eat uh, healthier forms of uh, vegetarian protein if you can. That's not processed. So I teach my patients. You know, if it looks like a hot dog, there's a chance it's processed. If it looks like bologna, it's a chance it's processed. If it looks like a hamburger, chance it's processed. Oscar Mayer. They're, right. Well, there are some some that are better than others, but mm -hmm. I encourage people, I say, look, make a big salad and throw some beans on top or make a lentil soup to have with your salad. Or if you're going to have a burger, make it a bean burger, right? Sure. Really look at quinoa Quinoa. Oh, quinoa is a great choice, yeah. right? Quinoa is a great choice. So make a portobello mushroom burger. You know, um, so there are things that you can do where you'll feel totally satiated uh, and you won't be 
eating these processed foods. And I don't say you have to become a vegetarian overnight, but what I do do with individuals like that, because many of them have other underlying health challenges. I'm thinking of one lady in particular who literally could not even walk into my office. She was in so much pain. She was so overweight. Her joints were hurting. I, I have a program called the Jump Start, where I actually have people do two high-fiber protein drinks a day and uh, with a complement of a full vitamin in them, so they're getting their nutrients. And then I have them select their snacks, and those are all low-glycemic snacks. Mm -hmm. And then they have one main meal. So if you want to have a meal with your family at night, but it's gluten-free, it's dairy-free, there's no alcohol for the first 21 days, we're off of no fruit juice, you know, it's really, gee, I'm going to have a grilled fish or I'm go and a big salad and, you know, uh, uh, and so on. And I cannot tell you how, and I, and I warn people, I say the first seven days you will hate me, but by day 10 you will start to love me because you're going to, your aches, there's a good chance your aches and pains are going to get better, your sinus congestion is going to get better, your brain fog, your headaches. Let's see how you do. And I remember one woman, um, she was so depressed over her weight, and she started, and in 21 days for the first time, started to decrease her weight, and she kept it up. She said, I'm not going to stop this program. I said, it's great. You're fine. It's healthy. Sure. Do it. She lost 70 pounds, and her whole life transformed. She felt good about herself again. She is. So that's what I usually do. I usually do a jump start for three weeks with a lot of my patients, as you just described. And I don't take their meat away because if they're used to eating it, I may switch them from beef and pork to leaner forms of meat, sure. right? But I don't rush to take that away. I don't think that's the issue. I think what's killing America right now is simple carbs and sugar and supersizing simple carbs and sugar. Yeah, and that's that's messing up our people, our patients with diabetes as well. It's so abundant everywhere you go, and you know, I mean, you, you know, I I'm not a believer in extreme diets like right. you know the Atkins diet, you know, 20 grams of carbs for the whole day. But I do think reduced carbs is so such a great way to improve your diabetes, lose a little bit of weight you know, and, and get healthier. Now, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the word organic a few times. Mm. And, you know, you go to Whole Foods, it's like a whole paycheck. Right. Uh, there's Jimbo's, there's other places. And um, I, I'm skeptical of things that get labeled organic. And I do know that certain foods are more important to be organic. Right. But what, what's your opinion on that? It, it's very tricky because you can have an organic farm sitting next to a non-organic farm and all those pesticides just get blown on over, right? So that's what the skeptics will say. But I, I sort of like the work done by the Environmental Working Group. I think they have a very good website. It's called ewg.org. And uh, they have a list of uh, vegetables and fruits called the Clean 15 which are things you don't have to buy organic, and the dirty dozen. And it is worth looking at the dirty dozen list because, for example, a strawberry with that thin skin may be sprayed 15 times by the time it gets to us. So if organic strawberries are on sale or organic blueberries are on sale, that may be a great time to buy them, wash them, and then freeze them, right? So you have them in your your freezer for a little snack or, wow. uh, so I think looking at 
Um, and, and I do think the research, and you can let me know what you say on this, uh, around pesticides and herbicides and insulin resistance uh, is very interesting. Yeah, you know, you just said some interesting things, so important. What what's what is that website? It's uh, www.ewg.org. Yeah. E-W-G. E-W-G. as in George, so environmentalworkinggroup.org. And I think they do it. You can just go on there and download the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15, and that will save you some money because at least you say, okay, I don't need to buy that one organic, but I better get this one organic and this is the reason why. Yeah, that, that makes that makes so much sense. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, it's, it's just amazing to me how little uh, physicians know, including myself. I probably know more than the average physician about diet, just dealing with people with diabetes. But there's so much out there that people need to know. And I think, is it fair to say that a lot of the things you're talking about uh, overall uh, reduces inflammation? Certainly weight loss must help with inflammation. Absolutely. And I've had to debate in front of many people. I had to debate on the paleo diet versus the Mediterranean diet versus the vegetarian diet. And, um, you know, the, the bottom line is when we look at research, We know the um, anti-inflammatory Mediterranean diet has a lot of research for cardiovascular disease. But what I always say in these debates is let's look at where we all can agree. Can we all agree that that white things, sugar, cookies, cakes, candy, ice cream, fruit juice, soda, excess alcohol, that these things are going to spike up our insulin and these are not good for us. And everybody can say, yes, we can all agree. Can we all agree that green vegetables, cruciferous vegetables are good for us? Yes, we can all agree. So there's a lot that we can actually agree on and it doesn't have to be that complicated. You should be president of the United States, oh, the way you know. bring people together and go about <laughs> it. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about um, the cholesterol panel. Um, I'll just start off by saying, you know, most people get their total cholesterol, their LDL, their HDL, and triglycerides, and they're they're very confused by it. And then you get some physicians uh, who have access to a upscale lab, and they, you know, you get the reports of a zillion different types of lipids within the main category. So give us your stick on that. So, uh, you know, uh, I have to laugh because in the um, 1990s, uh, I got trained by uh, Robert Superco. I used to go to his conferences, and Superco was uh, the founder of the Berkeley Heart Lab. And it was really early on that I learned about this concept of particle sizes and particle numbers and types of LDL, and no one was having this discussion. I remember bringing this back to Scripps, and I was told or accused of practicing, quote-unquote, Rolls-Royce medicine. So I have to say, it takes medicine <laughs> about 20 years, and it's been over to catch 20 up to years you. to catch up. Well, not to me, but to change, right? And so uh, it's old school. When you say total cholesterol, then you see triglycerides, then you see HDL with a little C after it. That means it's a calculated number. And then you see LDL with a little C after it. And that's another calculated number. But now what the research tells us is we need to look at inflammation. 
because even if people have the same LDL, let's say you have two people with an LDL of 70, the person whose C-reactive protein or HSCRP is higher has a greater risk of cardiovascular events. So you have to add in the inflammatory markers. Then you take the lipids themselves and you say, okay, LDL, if the particles are small, what we call small dense LDL, they're more aggressive, more likely to get into the lining of the vessels. And what the research shows is that if you compare the calculated LDL, the LDLC, with the LDL particle number, the LDL particle number is better at predicting risk. So I think I think the old lipid panel is exactly that. It's old. And I think people today should be saying, what is my LDL particle number? the good cholesterol, my HDL particle number. If you're a young person with cardiovascular disease or have vascular disease in the family, you want to know your LP little a, which is a genetic risk factor. And everyone should know their markers for inflammation at a minimum in HSCRP. So, you know, and of course, um, everyone should know their fasting blood sugar. They should know their fasting insulin, right? Yep, I mean, yep. Well, let me ask you this. <clears throat> The <clears throat> markers of inflammation that you just mentioned, CRP, it's not on a routine chem panel. And I would think that, especially for type 2 diabetes and also for type 1, it should be there. Just like we have a urine albumin to creatinine ratio to measure their kidney function. Um, and then the other thing is, is the cholesterol levels. Um, when you say the particle size, I know what you're talking about. How would you explain that to a Right. So I would uh, so think about it almost like bubbles, right? You could particles are um, lipids are particles, and uh, you can think about them as being large in size, like a large bubble, or small in size. And it's those small and those small lipids, what we call small, dense, packed cholesterol that place individuals at increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And what we typically see in type 2 diabetes is a lipid panel that shows the triglycerides are high because people have to remember that triglycerides are the form of fat that come from sugar and simple carbs. So if your triglycerides are high and you get rid of your soda and your fruit juice and all your white stuff and your cookies, cakes, and candy, all of a sudden you'll start to see your triglycerides come down. And triglycerides live in relationship with the good cholesterol, right, the HDL. So when the triglycerides come down, that good cholesterol, the HDL, will go up. And when we see those high triglycerides, especially if they're above 250, we know those LDL particles are small and they're very aggressive. And all of this is amenable. Like when my patients say, how do I get my LDL particle number down? I say, lose weight, exercise, build muscle, get off the sugar and simple carbs. And it works. It's magic. You don't even need a drug for that if someone has weight to lose. Yeah, you know, and it, it is very confusing for a lot of caregivers because when you, correct me if I'm wrong, but when you have the LDL particles small, which is not good, you when you do a calculated measurement, you, the number is low. And then a doctor will say, oh, my God, your LDL is so low. You know, and also at that same time, the triglycerides are high. And then, of course, when the, you treat the triglycerides by any means, improve diabetes control or medication, mm -hmm. the LDL goes up and they think, oh, my God, that's bad. But in actual, small dense is turning into 
fluffy puffy right. LDL. Exactly. And it's not bad. It's like when we used to say if somebody had super, super high triglycerides, and you know, that's an indication for giving omega-3 or fish oil, super high sure. triglycerides, sure. and all of a sudden the LDL goes up, it's, it's natural because now you're breaking down the triglycerides to LDL. Yeah. So for our listeners, don't get too overwhelmed, but it is complicated, and the particle size is extremely important. It could lull a lot of people and caregivers into a false sense of security. Well, gosh, I didn't think we would use up all the time, and we're coming to the end, but I thought we would end with a little bit on the mind and the, the body and the soul, meditation. I know yoga is a physical. I've done it twice, um, and... Um, <laughs> It was sore for only a week afterwards the first time. <laughs> you know what? I should have stretched more when I was younger, but I do like yoga. Um, I don't look good in the leotards, but I just wear some loose shorts. Um, and how important is that? I know it's important. Meditation, uh, having a, the right mindset, uh, mental relaxation. I mean, that has to sort of play into how people follow the other rules of the game to, to live a healthier lifestyle. Absolutely. How often do I hear someone say, I was so stressed at work, I went home and I drank a bottle of wine, or I have 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes, or, you know, I was so stressed, I, I ate two donuts, right? Um, so we three. need Or three, right. <laughs> so uh, I think we really need to look at who we are. And if that's playing into our lives, we need to put some something in our life that works. And for some people, that might be prayer and contemplation. For some people, it might be, you know, you said yoga, you don't have to wear a leotard, you don't have to have a head wrap. Pink, pink. And, and, the, and look what's happening in the U.S. People are breaking down, like my cardiac patients, right? We can keep them alive a long time, but they're coming in with back pain and knee pain and joint pain. Imagine if they were doing yoga from 20 years old and they had a level of flexibility and they can get up off the floor. My, one of my patients falls. They can't, sometimes they can't even get up. And so um, I think anyone could start at a level one class and, uh, and do, some, do some gentle yoga. Uh, I think everyone can breathe. And I'm just going to, for the audience's purpose, if you feel stressed, if someone's telling you something that's making you anxious or you're going to do something that makes you anxious, just breathe. Right, just remembering to breathe. And if you just take a breath in four seconds, hold it for two seconds, let it out for seven seconds, what we call the four, two, seven breath, it immediately puts your body into a state of relaxation. Right, so you breathe in for four, hold it for two, let it out for seven. There you go. And immediately the body begins to come down. So um, that's the breath is the closest thing we have. And remember, if you're drinking a lot of caffeine, that can make you feel tense and stressed and can even raise your blood pressure. So pay attention to what you're doing. Amy, what a great way to end. Uh, I'll never forget 427, which I've never heard before. And being a crazy doctor running around like crazy, I could use some of those or two sevens during the day. Thank you so much for coming on the my podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay. Thank really you. appreciate you. I think you changed my life starting today. Wonderful. And Seriously. you changed mine. So thank you. Namaste. Namaste.